2: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DiRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago
3: Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are joined by Black Francis of the Pixies for a classic album dissection of the band's landmark release, Doolittle. Plus, we'll review the new album from Texas rockers, Midlake. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. We
4: would zigzag away through the bottom and pain,
5: occasionally glancing up through the rain, wondering which of the brothers to blame.
4: Watching for pigs on the wing
2: Greg, some big news of a legal victory out of the U.K. An engineer named Alan Ellis has been acquitted of charges of conspiracy to defraud copyright holders in the case that uh, U.K. prosecutors brought against Oink. Oink was a a hugely popular file-sharing site that operated from 2004 to 2007, had a lot of fans, 21 million users, and Ellis was brought up on charges of uh, basically trying to profit from from facilitating a copyright infringement. The courts uh, acquitted him of that. He wasn't making money from this site that he had created. doesn't say whether the British courts would have held guilty people who were trading files via this BitTorrent site, but the guy who created it was let off the hook. And, it, you know, it had some huge fans. People like Trent Reznor were way out front there saying it was the world's greatest record store. That's a <laughs> little bit of a misnomer because what it was really like was like a
3: library where people were trading books, or, or it's been called Celestial Jukebox. You know, the way I'm reading this ruling, Jim, is that Alan Ellis is off the hook, but Trent Reznor may not be. The U.K. courts may be coming after him and those 21 million other users who downloaded these files.
2: That gorgeous song is If You Don't Know Me By Now by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes with the great Teddy Pendergrass on vocals. Teddy Pendergrass passed recently. Been a slew of deaths in the music world, Greg. Jay Retard, that ultra-melodic garage rocker out of Memphis. Danny Flesher, the uh, co-founder of Wax Tracks Records in Chicago. But a huge loss with Teddy Pendergrass.
3: Yes, a lot to catch up on, Jim. And uh, Pendergrass, one of the giants of R&B, without a doubt died at the age of 59 recently perhaps most famously known the last couple of decades for that awful auto crash in the early 80s that uh, paralyzed him from the chest down and basically derailed his career he Mm -hmm. continued to make records you know gave the occasional live appearance but was never really the same for obvious reasons but in that first decade where he was an active recording musician Really reinvented R&B in many ways. He started out as a drummer out of Philly, came out of a hardscrabble background. His father was murdered when he was 12 years old, and he came out of a heavy church singing background. Then worked his way into the music business as a drummer, and that's how he was originally hired by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, one of the hottest bands in Philly at the time. Now, the two key producers in Philly at the time were Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, and they weren't all that impressed with the band until... Uh, Harold Melvin made Pendergrass the lead singer. He heard the guy sing and said, you need to be up front Mm. singing these lead vocals. And Gamble and Huff immediately signed the band to their Philly International label, and they made a string of hits with Harold Melvin in the blue notes, including that song that we just played. There was a tension within the band, obviously. Harold Melvin was thinking, hey, I'm the guy. Teddy Pendergrass was saying, no, I'm the guy. You made me the lead singer. Teddy went off on a solo career, had offers from numerous labels, decided to re-up with Gamble & Huff with Philly International, and went on to have a series of solo records that uh, really defined that slow jam ballad singing style. When you think about singers today like R. Kelly or Usher or John Legend, they all took notes from the Teddy Pendergrass catalog. Here's an up-tempo track and a message song from Pendergrass that sort of cuts against the grain of what most people think of him as the ultimate slow jam balladeer. On the first album that he made with Gamble and Huff as a solo artist, he recorded this song, You Can't Hide From Yourself. It's a classic Gamble and Huff song recorded by Pendergrass that also indicates how versatile he could be as a singer. Teddy Pendergrass, dead at the age of 59, here he is with You Can't Hide From Yourself on Sound Opinions.
0: I just got to tell you that
3: Soul singer Teddy Pendergrass dead at the age of 59 with You Can't Hide From Yourself on Sound Opinions.
2: listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song La La Love You by the Pixies from their 1989 album, Doolittle. From time to time here, Greg, we like to do these classic album dissections on Sound Opinions, trying to dig deep into an album that we love and shed some light on its making and how it is standing up. And the Pixies' uh, Doolittle stands up pretty well in a 2003 Mm -hmm. poll. The uh, New Music Express out of the UK named it the second best rock album of all time period. You know, spanning that period from indie rock in the 80s into the alternative explosion of the 90s. The Pixies, of course, after a long period of dormancy, are back,
3: reunited, and they toured last year. This album, playing it in its entirety. Yeah, it's an album that made a slow climb to gold record status, Jim. It was released in 1989. It didn't go gold until six years later. But had an incredible influence over that alternative rock era of the early 90s. I mean, Nirvana famously cited it as Mm -hmm. as their primary inspiration for a record like Nevermind. Now, the main singer and songwriter in the band is named Charles Thompson III. As a solo performer, he goes by the name Frank Black. But in the Pixies, he was known as Black Francis. And I asked him about the origination of that name.
1: That was a name... Given to me, as a suggestion, by my father, actually. Mm -hmm. Where did he get it from? I believe that Black is a surname on my father's side of the family. Back a ways, uh, coming over from Scotland. Mm. Uh, Criminals scheduled to be hung at the neck. (laughs) Managed to make it to America. And um, that's the Blacks. And they settled on a little island off the coast of... Maine, I believe, called Vinyl Haven. And, um, really? Yeah. This, uh, <laughs> stone like Quarry there. there. They were quarry men, yeah. you know, quarry men slash thieves. And Francis is uh, my grandmother's name.
2: Ah. Well, it seems kind of appropriate in a way, because when Greg and I first saw the Pixies circa that first EP and then Surfer Rosa, there was this kind of pirate quality to the band, you know, touring America in the van. But as we've said, Frank, Charles... Black. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we do these uh, classic album dissections from time
1: to time, and we thought it would be more than appropriate to dive into Doolittle. Every every artist has one record that they're kind of uh, – some artists have, are lucky enough to have lots of records they're known for. But I think everybody has one, if you look at the numbers, that is sort of the one that so- sells the most, you know. And for for, for me and for the Pixies, uh, Doolittle, for sure, is the one. We were looking at the timeline, and we want to start with the making of that album and what the
2: goals were. It was really a short period of time between that debut album, Surfer Rosa comes out in early 88, Mm -hmm. and then a couple months later, you're making the second album. Mm -hmm. The first one was done with Steve Albini, and then you work with this guy, Gil Norton, Mm -hmm. a a British
1: guy. What was the decision and what was the goal? What, What did you want to do with Doolittle? I think that we just wanted to get the heck out of Dodge. We wanted to not be local yokels or big fish in a small pond. I felt like there was probably a lot of that. There probably is a lot of that in every medium-sized city where you have a bunch of rock bands, where the band will achieve some sort of local success, and then you can kind of get comfortable with that. Mm. But I think that we intuitively knew that that was a dead end and we just we wanted to be on the circuit we wanted to go to Europe or New York City or L.A. or wherever it took us. So when the record company said, you want to work with Steve Albini? We're like, who's he? Sounds great. (laughs) When they said, you want to work with this guy, Gil Norton? Absolutely.
3: Who's he? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure we'll get along just fine. We'll make a record. Well, in talking to you about that period of time, Charles, it seemed like uh, you were on fire with the songwriting, the the demos for for Doolittle. It seemed like you were excited about it. Joey, the rest of the band seemed to be excited about it. Like you knew you had the goods before you made that record, it sounded like.
1: Uh, Yeah, we recorded the demos at a little recording studio underneath the hairdressers in Newton, Massachusetts. A little eight-track studio. And when we finished it, uh, and it comprised most of the songs that are on Doolittle, I think probably a couple other songs showed up later. Songs like uh, Silver, and there might be one other song that... Uh, cropped up later, but there was a sense that we had done something really great or it was Mm -hmm. exciting to us, you know. It felt really strong. We were very much about the band. That's all we really cared about at that time was Mm -hmm. the band. And I mean, you know, we used to just go out and hang up the posters and try to get the gigs and get the van all rigged Mm -hmm. up with a mattress in the back and whatever. I mean, I remember being in a warehouse, and the Come On Pilgrim EP came out, and they sent me the proof at the warehouse. I worked in a warehouse, and Joey worked in another warehouse down the road, and I saw the proof of the very first release that we had. And I think I gave my notice that day at my job because it was like, okay, this is validation, see? (laughs) Some like artsy-fartsy guys in London think we're pretty hot stuff. (laughs) So I'm out of here.
2: Charles, you brought up the arty-farty guys in in London. I remember... I say that affectionately. Of course, 4AD records. Uh, I I remember that period, and and there was this busy scene up and down the East Coast. You know, all the bands from Boston would come and play in in New York, New Jersey, where I was growing up, and you know, Dump Truck would come down, and and Lifeboat, and all Mm -hmm. these groups, and you know, something's different about the Pixies. You know, they'd been signed by 4AD. 4AD was this already weird label in the U.K., the Cocteau Twins, and we all loved everything 4AD did. But how did these guys from Boston who—the four of those people don't look like they go together, and they don't look like cooler than any of us schlubs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> you
1: know, how did you get endorsed by, uh, by, by 4AD and, and really championed? We started to be managed by a guy who worked with the Throwing Muses, and they had a release on, on 4AD Records. And as far as how we got signed, other than you know our first tape or whatever got sent to their offices, I believe the actual um, the catalyst to make it happen truly was a young woman who worked at the label who happened to be the partner or girlfriend of, of the head of the label. And he didn't hear it Mm. at that time. Mm. And she said, nudge, nudge, (laughs) you should really sign this band.
3: Well, you know, the, the, the first EP and Surfer Rosa by virtue maybe of being on that label, they, they came on, and I just remember those, the vinyl, they were just beautiful packages. What were you looking for Doolittle to accomplish in terms of, was this another step for the band? Did you want a fuller sound? Did you want to do something different?
1: I mean, I don't remember if I had any particular uh, artistic vision at that time. I tend to not be that type of person. I write songs and I go record them. You kind of Talk about it and pontificate about it in the moment when you're excited, but I don't know how much real artistic vision there was. I think any am- our ambition, my ambition was to be good and mm-hmm. to be in a band and not be working a day job <laughs> and to be hanging out in recording studios and nightclubs and hanging out with other musicians or whatever and uh, living the dream mm-hmm. that I had carried with me since I was a very young boy mm-hmm. to be a musician <laughs> I'm in the club. I'm in the same club as the Rolling Stones. (laughs) I may not be as famous as the Rolling Stones, but who gives a hoot? Because I'm also really into the Violent Femmes or Lou Reed or whatever. And so I work as a musician. I make records. That's what I do. That's all that really matters ultimately.
3: Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to continue our classic album dissection of the Pixies' Doolittle with the lead singer, Black Francis. And later on, Jim and I are going to review the latest album from Texas indie rockers, Midlake.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're doing a classic album dissection of the Pixies' 1989 record *Doolittle*, with lead singer Charles Thompson. The song you're hearing underneath is *The Baser*, a track from *Doolittle* that references the Louis Blumenfeld surrealist film *Un Chien Andalou*, specifically the scene where the eyeball is sliced open. Not your typical. Film, not your typical rock song either. So during our conversation, we asked Charles to explain the surrealist influence on the Pixies.
1: Surrealism. Could I write a thesis on it? Probably not. Un and Delou, the film by Louis Buñuel. Was uh, a film, of course, that you saw when you were in college, if you w- if you took film classes. But that song that we did uh, on the record, "Debaser," which references it, it's really like the Cliff Notes version mm-hmm. of like a uh, paper on the film *Un Chien Andalou*. I don't really have a big point about it. Just like, yeah, I saw this film, mm. slicing up eyeballs, ha, 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 ho. I grew up uh, for a time in my life around a lot of fundamentalist preaching. So I, I think I had a feel for shouting from the podium. You mm. know what I mean? I was just barely out of my teens. So I had a, a lot of uh, sexual uh, frustration or whatever maybe in my life. We we sing Un in the song, we go... Un chien, Andalou. just didn't sound right. Yeah. Un chien, Andalusia. Yeah, yeah. We switched from the French to the Spanish right yeah. in the middle of the phrase. Mm-hmm. Because I was inspired by um, linguistics, too. I The other class that I really enjoyed was a very basic linguistics course. And so you learn about language and how it changes and how no matter how many rules you have, it's all be- – the people just start chipping away at all those rules mm-hmm. and many many years later I read a book about Serge Gainsbourg and he says in the book at some point I am a surrealist I mean he wasn't saying that he was a big heavy in the movement or anything or that he was connected to anything in particular he just tried to sum up who he was as a writer mm-hmm. and when I read that I went oh yeah that's what I am or at least at that time I didn't know it, but I think that's where I was at. Instinctively, yeah. It's just all instinct and and feel and, uh, you know. Well, and the love of words. I mean,
2: when you're singing about the the sludge from New York and New Jersey, I mean, all of us who were fans in that scene, I mean, it's just the the way you relished spitting out those words. We were like, yeah, that is our life, sludge. Got killed by 10 million pounds of sludge from New York and New Jersey.
1: i could talk about another band uh the beatles i mean you know when i was a kid i heard beatles records and a lot of 60s records bob dylan records of course donovan records that kind of stuff and sure the old stuff is love love me Do" and all that but as soon as you get into their more um expressive phase savoy truffle or whatever <laughs> lucy in the sky with diamonds whatever it's like good enough for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Come on without, come on within, you ain't seen nothing but the mighty Quinn. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It's like Bob Dylan's like, you know, I don't know what the hell he's singing about. I don't think he knows what he's singing about. Mm-hmm. People get too bogged down in the whole blown in the, in the wind aspect of it, which is beautiful. So I was always a little bit, when I first started making records, and I would talk to reviewers who they took this real straight corny like <laughs> as if it was 1950 or something you know like what are you doing singing all these crazy songs yeah. with the crazy <laughs> lyrics and it's just like no. are you kidding me it's yeah. like you never you ever listen to the white album you ever listen to like you know mm-hmm. blonde on blonde whatever it's like people are so enamored of that that they can't think outside that even though the there is stuff outside that all the time that's just flying all around. But when yeah. they get to talking to talk into the artists, and they're like, "So your thing that you're trying to say, your message, it's like, hold on, man, I don't know. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah.
2: You know, anyway. Well, let's not be typical. Let, let's not be typical rock critics. Let's move from the lyrics to talk about the sound of this yeah. album.
1: Uh, yeah, and Charles. I'm fine with talking about the lyrics. I oh, just yeah, yeah. But- I just feel like it's really important for people to realize that it doesn't have to be about a message. Mm-hmm. There might be a message there. Right. That, we, that you were talking about, you know, the the sludge uh, falling down on the man on the sea. It's like I don't I'm just writing this song. I don't know what it's about, but yeah, there's some environmental kind of imagery or something, you know, talking about pollution or something a hole in the sky. Yeah, but there's not a real point to the song. It's enough just to say it. It's enough
2: to feel it. It's you know, enough it makes it. it evokes it, this feeling. You know,
1: rather than say Oh, things are looking pretty messy down in the ocean. Oh, oh, oh. you mean that's okay, but sometimes it's nice just to go. There's this guy, he lives in the sea, he's the king of the sea. And, you know, it's just, you get yeah. into storytelling or, I don't know, it's more childlike, I don't know.
2: But, but let's, let's talk about the sounds. There was such a crunch to Dave Lovering's drumming. And, and Joey's guitar playing, uh, Santiago's guitar playing was so unique. And what you and Kim Deal would do with the vocals. Was that all there or, or was that something that you worked on in the studio and kind of enhanced or stumbled on?
1: Well, I mean, there's stuff there because, like, you know, every group of musicians, they, they bring to them all of the records that they ever listened to, good and bad, and it's really up to a producer to bring that out. Now, Steve Albini, I think, was really just trying to be an engineer, and he was not going to give these simple native people, any aspirin, <laughs> for their headache. He right. was just there to document what was going on. You hit
2: record, that's you it. You know,
1: and he was, I mean, he did help us a little bit. He did get us a little bit louder, and he you know, he had his aesthetic, but he wasn't concerned about being a producer. But Gil, not only was he a producer, but he's a British producer. And they're much more concerned with pop. They have a metaphorical kind of a jacket on. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you're they, pulling
2: you- on your shirt. We all envision the British
1: producer as
2: Abbey Road white lab, white coats. lab coats. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: they're, just, they're just way more about that. And so, Gil, the reason I think that Doolittle is popular is because it still had enough of the sort of uh, loose garage, grungy kind of ham-fisted in the rough musicianship that we brought to it so it's a good marriage of the raw with the sort of the fancy.
3: like Joey's guitar part in I Bleed, you know, that sort of abrasive sound, Was that something that, you know, when you're writing the song, you're sort of hearing that in your head, or when you give it to Joey, he says, here's what I'm hearing, how would that work within the band, in terms of getting that sort of texture into that song?
1: We would, I don't know what he thinks about it, because he's like a person of very few words, mm. but he's a, he's an odd character like that, you know, and it's, and his, Guitar playing reflects his personality. Mm-hmm. And it's sweet too. It's like it's abrasive, but he has this kind of sweet, gentle thing that's mixed in with it. You know, like little kids, they'll just, like, be really sweet and tender, but they'll also just pick something up and go, oh, and they'll just smash it on the <laughs> ground and go, like, and then there's that, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of how he is with his guitar playing. Sometimes he's just like, tickie, I'm so cute. They take a little, 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 listen to that. Yeah. And then other times it's just like,
0: I'm going to kill it. Ah, ah! You
1: know? <laughs>
3: It wasn't intellectualized in any way. It was no, just like, here's that no. sound, and I think it sounds cool. Would you edit him in any way? Like, say, I'm not sure that works with this.
1: We don't discuss stuff very much. We never did. I mean, there was more non-discussion than discussion, mm-hmm. you know? So you just go into a room and play it over and over and over and over until it doesn't sound boring
3: anymore. What about the heavy breathing duet with, uh, with Kim <laughs> in Tame? That I, you know, Again, that's a part that everybody... Looks at it like, oh wow, that's, that's kind of fresh, that's different.
1: Fresh and different. It's yeah. just something that happened. I have absolutely no memory of how that even transpired. Oh I don't know maybe we were just like smoking way too much pot or something and that's why i don't remember but <laughs> i don't think so i think it was more about just being lost in the uh the creative process and because uh, actually i would say that i don't think i've ever done anything creative while inebriated or high on a drug or something i think the only thing i've done better while smoking pot was Parallel Park <laughs> and then and everything else was basically just a big waste of time yeah, yeah. so I think that when we were coming up with a lot of arrangements it was just the process of playing and playing and playing and just being in the moment and you know I, not a lot of artistic vision the vision is let's do it but there wasn't really much of a blueprint mm. other than we knew that we didn't want to sound like that Mm-hmm. You know, we're bosses, all university kids and everything. So all the bands that were coming from New York, they were pretty edgy. You know what I mean? Go yeah. out, you know, go see the Swans, you know, and they come out and play their show. I mean, I didn't even know who the hell they were. Yeah, But there they were, 10 minutes later after their show started, they hadn't even played a note. It's like totally just silent, just glaring at the audience. You know? And Michael Girard
2: was a <laughs> yeah. scary guy. Yeah, you know, it,
1: was like, it was like, all right, woo, this is kind of intense. You know? <laughs> so there was a lot of that kind of just yeah. like confrontational intensity, not aggressive, not like um, trying to hurt anybody or anything like that, but just it was really about the art. You know, and uh, anyway, so that's that's where, yeah. we, that's where we came from. That's who we still are to this day. Oh, gee, how come you guys don't, gee, you guys don't say too much, you know, uh, this is in recent years. You don't say too much to the audience. What's wrong? You go, you go, they seem like they're in a pretty bad mood. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm sorry, man, but I'm not, I've stopped, I've stopped a festival gig one time. It's like. They're, like, throwing around this big blow-up beach ball in the shape of a shark or something. Yeah. And I was just like, all right, just stop. Just stop. Give me the shark. Throw the shark up here. That is not going to happen at this gig. I'm sorry. You guys don't get it. Yeah. This is not about, like, kicking a beach ball around. That's a different band. That's a different yeah, yeah, yeah. show, whatever, man. And that's what I don't – I don't, it's like I, I, I just get dumbfounded when people are like, you guys don't seem like you're in a very good mood. There's a lot of – Come on, everybody. Put your hands together. Right? Come on. You guys having a good time tonight. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I mean, it's just like we come from a time when that was just the last thing in the world you want to do. Do whatever you want to do to manipulate the audience and have them in the palm of your hand. But you're not going to do that. You're not going to do Las Vegas. That was the thing. It was like, don't do that. That is wrong. No, it's true. There was a Boston intensity.
2: Before we get much further afield, let's remind people we're talking to uh, Charles Thompson, Black Francis, Frank Black, and we're talking Doolittle. How much did the ghost of Mission of Burma hang over all the music that was coming out of Boston at that period? And how much were, were you or were you not influenced by them? Because I sort of heard it as a continuum. You know, Burma led to Pixies, and not long after Pixies led to Nirvana in terms of unbelievable intensity, loud rock, but really sweet melodies.
1: You know, you sit down and play on an acoustic guitar, it could be a Beatles song. I had my little hodgepodge collection at Records. I'm sure I heard Mission Burma around that time. But, you know, I think probably bands that I heard more than Burma at that time, Husker Du and big influential band on me, was an SST band called Angst or Angst, oh, A-N-G-S-T. Yeah, yeah. They... We very obscure. I Google them, you won't find nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I remember that
2: group. You always wondered why they were on SST. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. But really great songs, and they had this nice kind of sad mopiness to them. Mm.
5: Sometimes)
1: the connections between me and other bands whatever I just I don't know either I like a band or I don't like a band and I mean I was hanging out today at a recording studio before I came here and the guy I'm working with he's like oh man they made millions off that man let me show you the chords don't you see it's your song but the Mm. chords are just in a different sequence (laughs) I'm like yeah, but, you know, it's a different sequence. And even if it was the same sequence, I mean, yeah. you know, they sound like that. I sound like this.
3: Well, that's the Kurt Cobain line about Smells Like Teen Spirit, as we were trying to write a Pixie song.
1: I mean, I mean, how many times have I made a record where you don't have lyrics to a bunch of music? And so the engineer is like, so what are you going to call this one? I'm like, I don't know. What do you want to call it? The Stonesy one. Okay, yeah, yeah, what yeah, do yeah. you call that one? It's the, the Velvet Underground-y one.
2: When you guys did uh, Here Comes Your Man, was it the Beach Boys one or was it the... British Invasion one. I mean, there's such a, a real innocent pop sensibility to that one that's instantly familiar.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a song that I wrote when I was a teenager, and we had actually cut it for Come On Pilgrim, but it got left off. And it's funny that's one of our most popular songs to say we didn't play it for years because it was too. We thought it was too sweet.
4: I said-
1: We'll sing along, here comes your man, yeah. <laughs> and it's like I think maybe I'm wrong, but I get the impression that a lot of people, when they hear that song, God Bless Them, they really think that the song is this kind of song, hmm. and it isn't, it sounds like that kind of song but lyrically it's this kind of song mm-hmm. and so i feel like i'm kind of being devious there and kind of <laughs> getting away with something so i feel good i feel like i'm i'm kind of um what's the word i'm looking for you know you're, you're being subversive yeah. subversive thank you i feel like i'm being on, I'm being subversive so people go, oh that song here comes your man well, could you play it on the tonight show da, 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 great oh we love that song we played it at our wedding <laughs> yeah you know what i mean it's just like oh man the song's about like Hobos and, like, earthquakes fall and rocks fall on your head and stuff. I mean, I don't even know what the phrase Here Comes Your Man means. Outside is a box car waiting. Outside the family stew. The hobos cooking their stew, right? Yeah. Outside we wait till face turns blue. They're in the elements. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're living out there, but, you know, sometimes, oh, old Joe turned up dead today. Mm-hmm. He's blue. Gil Norton wanted another verse, you know? I don't got another verse. We need another verse, man. It's a pop song. Gil's, Gil, he doesn't care that it's not that kind of song. He wants it to be this. He wants it to be a pop song. He yeah. doesn't give two hoots. Great. You get your already farty lyrics. Great. Whatever. Just give us more. We want to hear another chorus. Yeah. You know? He wants to hear that. <laughs> He's on the same page with all of the more passive music listeners. Mm-hmm. So I suppose that was kind of genius on his part because he was like, look, it's okay that you're not singing some love song. The fact is we got this little riff that goes, and I've been playing that on the piano since I was like 14 years old. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So the song didn't mean that much to me at the time. I was like, oh, this is just some song I'm embarrassed about that I wrote when I was – A kid,
3: you know. Yeah, and and I think think about that a lot. You you know, you'll sing certain lines that are very, almost horrific, in a sort of a dispassionate kind of matter of fact voice, and the and the words that are least horrific are the ones that are you know sometimes screamed out there. Like I'm thinking of a song like "Wave of Mutilation." So you're flipping the script there, you know, Wave of Mutilation, you, you, you're listening to that song, and you go, wait a minute, he's singing about, some, you know, a family driving a car off the, into the ocean and drowning themselves, you know, and it's kind of like, wow.
1: Well, I guess sort of dramatic things on planet Earth can also be kind of beautiful in some spooky way, like the ocean, for example. It'll kill you like in two seconds, right? Mm -hmm. A wave of mutilation, all that stuff down there, whether it's the galleons or whether it's the Japanese businessman who committed suicide with his whole family, taking him with him. He's down there too. You know, Neptune's down there. Everyone's down there and there's the sea just churning it all Mm -hmm. up, turning it back into sand and dust and salt and everything. I mean, there's something about that that's kind of beautiful. It's like... All right, what a horrible thing! A guy committing suicide with his family and everything—that's just a horrible thing. But from the sort of non-emotional big picture, it all just gets churned up in the ocean, and it all just becomes life again, or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. kind of—I uh, guess—that kind of is a solace or something, you know. Oh, and, the fish um, crawls
2: out and starts to walk, and then this
1: guy went back. Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: exactly. Well, we we got to wrap up this classic album uh, chat. Charles, and, and when we do, Greg and I usually play a song uh, each that we really enjoy, but, but it's rare that we're talking to someone who made the album. If we had to put you on the spot and say, you know, which of these songs would you take to the desert island if you could only take one? Which which do you think epitomizes the album for you at this point, 20 years later?
1: I guess Monkey Gone to Heaven, probably. I mean, I think that has just enough of all of the elements that uh, that we've been talking about today kind of all together. It has a little bit of humor, it has a little bit of darkness, it has a little bit of the mythological, nautical thing, um, it has a little bit of, of violence, um, it has a little bit of kind of love and hope, it has a little bit of despair or whatever, mm. Whatever. It's, just, it's, it's all kind of mixed up. Melody, noise. Yeah. yeah. Spoken, sung, Kim mm-hmm. and I are singing together on the chorus. And so it has the yin and the yang, uh, which is a big, important element. We haven't talked about Kim a lot today, but there's a yin and yang thing with her and the band. And you know, I re- I've realized now over the years that she is what makes me tolerable to a lot of the audience <laughs> because uh, cause she softens me. Because if it's just me, it's just me doing my thing, and it's kind of a lot of me. But as soon as she's there, She'd just be standing there smoking a cigarette, and people'd be going crazy yeah. because they just love her. She's the—it's the yin and there's a yin and a yang thing here, and so um, she really brings that.
4: In the sky,
1: God
4: sucked.
3: the Pixies with Monkey Gone to Heaven it's our guest Charles Thompson's favorite song from their 1989 album Doolittle and that's going to wrap up our classic album dissection of that great record to share your critical thoughts on Doolittle or anything else in the rock universe on the air leave a message on our hotline 888-859-1800 you can also connect to us on Facebook, Twitter or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org up next Jim and I are going to review the new album from Texas Indie Rockers Midlake That's in a minute on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. What you're listening to is a little bit of the new Midlake album called The Courage of Others, that particular track called Acts of Man. We've been covering this band on Sound Opinions for a couple of years. They've been in-studio guests here. You listen to that track, and it has nothing to do with the way they sounded 10 years ago when they (laughs) formed at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas. In fact, when we had the guys in the studio a few years ago, they were joking about how they were such a much different band. They were focused on that time in sort of this jazz-funk realm, Then they moved into their uh, Radiohead light phase. Uh, They were imitating some of these newer bands that they were picking up on Radiohead, the Granddaddies, the Flaming Lips of the World, and and trying to make uh, versions of pop songs. A big change came, though, with the 2006 record The Trials of Van Occupanther. And if you've heard of this band, it's probably because of that record and the song Roscoe. A lot of people compared it to that early, mid-70s Fleetwood Mac-type vibe, and that's really not an insult because the band was writing some pretty darn good pop songs back in that era, and Tim Smith, the singer in the band, was talking about simplifying the band's sounds, two or three chords instead of 17 or 18, but working on the breadth and depth of the melodies and the harmony vocals. Now they're back with album number three, The Courage of Others is the name of it, and we're going to play a track from it first before we review it. It's called Bring Down from Midlake on Sound Opinions.
4: All the earth lies will fall from the earliest past across. That is the
2: lovely song Bring Down by the Texas band Midlake from their third album, The Courage of Others, here on Sound Opinions. Greg, you were talking about Fleetwood Mac as a reference point for the 2006 breakthrough by this band, The Trials of Van Occupanther. I heard it much more as this band from Denton trying to do the early Flaming Lips who were doing mid-period Pink Floyd. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Which is not to say that they they were unoriginal. I mean, you know, there was a real expansiveness in the sound and it was, uh, you know, psychedelic rock with a pop bent. You could hum these songs at Mm -hmm. the end of the day. Apparently, when they were touring that record, Record, which they did for several years. They were listening uh, increasingly to the early 60s English folk sounds in that period where the folk scene was merging with the psychedelic rock scene. Pentangle, Fairport Convention, and though I haven't seen any interviews where they mention them specifically, the incredible string band, mm-hmm. I think, resonates loud and clear. You look at the cover of this record. There is this creepy, like, dressed as warlocks Almart here, and it really fits the music. Talk about like a perfect late January, early February, darkest time of the year record. I mean, it It's gorgeous, but it's very chilling and creepy at
3: the same time. I've been listening to it nonstop for, for weeks now. It's a great record. It is a new kind of sound for them, uh, in a way. We heard hints of it on the Van their record. As you said, those English folk rock influences of the 60s are predominant here. That means uh, a lot of acoustic instrumentation with some of that Elizabethan Fair, Madrigal-type orchestration. Very little synthesizer or keyboard influence at all, which was a key part of their sound years yeah. ago, no longer there. I'm hearing a a little mini trend here in music, Jim, you know, with bands like Fleet Foxes and Blitz and Trapper and Animal Collective and these guys mid-like, this pre-industrial revolution type of vibe, let's get back (laughs) to the nature, man. They're not really hippies, I mean, but but at the same time, there's sort of a yearning for that innocence and that sense of awe that nature held over mankind. You know, we're on equal footing with nature. We're not dominating it, and we're not crushing it. I think there's a yearning for that in the lyrics here and the sound of this record. I'm going to buy it all the way with Midlake, The Courage of Others. So an enthusiastic double buy it for Midlake, Greg. What do we have on the show
2: next week? Next week, Jim, we have one woman wrecking crew, electro-clash pioneer, Peaches. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney recorded Frank Black, Black Francis, and Charles Thompson for us. Sound Opinions was produced, as always, by our intrepid, friendly foodies, Robin Lynn <laughs> and Jason Saldana. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, a man who has hauled 10 million pounds of sludge from New York to New Jersey, Tori Southside Melitia. <laughs>
3: Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. I'm
4: calling you New
5: messages. Hi, guys. My name is Nathan. I'm from Chicago. I just heard your double buy it for Lady Gaga, and I've got to say, I'm kind of shocked that there's no mention of the lyrical content. I understand that it's dance pop. You're evaluating on its own terms, and in dance pop, generally, the lyrics are considered besides the point. But come on, her lyrics are so bad, and maybe it's conceptual art. I don't get it, but I think you should at least take that into consideration and spend a minute making fun of her.
4: Okay, thanks. Got no salvation. No salvation. Got no salvation. Got no religion. No religion you. Take a of my back.
2: Hey guys, this is Mando from Chicago. Uh, Just heard your review uh, of Lady Gaga's repackage and the double buy it, And I gotta say, I agree with that. I know you're gonna get a lot of calls hitting on the idea, but I'll tell you, there's always gonna be pop music and... As much as I understand that people get annoyed by it, it's always going to be there. So if you
3: have the choice of, you know, Britney Spears or someone like Lady Gaga that actually has edgy ideas, that, you know, has some sort of statement,
2: and it's real, you know. If you ever see her in interviews, you see that she, she's a smart lady, you know. She has things to say. Anyways, I agree with you guys. Happy
5: 2010. Later.
4: My Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Chris from
3: Portland, Oregon. Jim, you're killing me, man. We listened to uh, 20 minutes of Kid Sister singing about painting her toenails, and then you got a problem with Vampire Weekend talking about drinking horchata.
5: In December, drinking horchata, I'd look like I'd in a balaclava.
4: Winter's
5: cold is too much to handle.
3: Both are equally as meaningless and equally as useless in musical conversation. Jim, I just think you don't like it, man. It's not any good critical reason. I think it just annoys you. Maybe it's because they're dudes. Anyhow, love the show.
4: Hey,
3: uh, my name is Scott. I'm from North Hollywood, California. Just listen to your show with Kid Sister and the Vampire Weekend review, and I think you guys are totally insane. You have Kid Sister jumping around, singing about her nails, white stuff. You guys are going nuts over her. I can even handle that. As soon as you start talking about Vampire Weekend, you're horrified that these guys are singing about lightweight things like horchata, what they're wearing and just the amount of just vile and anger you throw at them you know i've never been so ticked off at your show as as hearing that i, I love the show i even love that it can tick me off this much but you guys are bananas you're like when
5: this cold is too much to add